3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is the last Thursday of November, the 30th of November. Good morning, Spike. Mom, uh, how you going? How you going? Hey, uh, listeners. Hello, everyone. Yeah, um, yeah it is. Uh, it's been a bit dreary the past few days, but um, I know we're also in the midst of uh, a whole week of action, in particular by the Australian or like please, by the rank and file of the Australian Education Union, because I know that their higher-ups have discouraged, um, you know, their planned displays of solidarity with Palestine. But shout-out to all the teachers and educators that are getting out, um, you know, having difficult conversations with students. This is not something um, that, you know, can be swept under the rug. Kids are going to be hearing about it anyway. And by Such a great call. Yeah, by educators, you know, talking to students about uh, what's actually going on, giving them you know, an appropriate introduction to these kinds of conversations and by showing solidarity with all of the schools that have been bombed in Gaza. Yeah. Um, it is just um, amazing to see. So uh, once again, shout out to Rank and File, AEU and IEU um, members for all of the incredible work that they've been doing. Um, so we've got, uh, as usual, a fantastic show for you today. Spike, do you want to kick us off with the rundown? Yeah, so we'll be hearing the second part of my conversation with Ian McIntyre from the Common Social Change Library. Um, the Common Social Change Library is the go-to portal for social change resources. They gather and share resources from many different sources and organisations from all around the world in a user-friendly, accessible portal. Last week we heard part one, excuse me, <coughs> of a three-part conversation with Ian McIntyre where we discussed social change, why it was important to be able to access information about social change struggles in common, and uh, how documenting struggles helps us achieve social change in the future. I also asked Ian if we can reform, if we can reform our way to a more just society, and what the and what the first steps are in planning a campaign. Um, this week we'll hear about the types of resources available at the C. CSCL, that's a tricky one, uh, who uses those resources and the central role that history plays in planning and achieving social change. Incredible. I think that's really going to set the scene for then the conversations we have about direct and immediate actions that um, across the rest of the show, because after that, we're going to be joined by uh, independent queer researcher, Dr. Shoshana Rosenberg, to talk about disability and trans solidarity with Palestine in the face of Israel's ongoing violent occupation. And we'll be exploring the connections between disability justice, trans freedom and liberation for Palestine. So part of this is going to be a discussion about genocide as a mass disabling event and what it means for disabled folks to engage in solidarity actions across colonial borders and from stolen land in so-called Australia. Now, this is going to be covering some distressing content around state violence. So uh, when the interview comes up, we'll give you some lines that you can call and a bit of a heads up around uh, when to tune out and tune back in if you're not comfortable listening to that content today. 
We'll also be joined by Ronnie Kareni. Ronnie's an, a former comrade or colleague of ours at 3CR. He's also a West Papua activist, 3CR broadcaster, and, uh, ad, ad, and advisor and honorary fellow of the University of Wollongong's West Papua Project. He'll join us to share some reflections on the struggle for liberation for West Papua in the lead up to December 1st, West Papuan Independence Day. December 1st marks the anniversary of the first raising of the Morning Star flag, and this year will be commemorated in Nam Melbourne, in Nam Melbourne, sorry, with the Morning Star ceremony, which kicks off at 4 p.m. tomorrow at Federation Square. Yeah, really excited yeah. to be joined by Ronnie. Um, and finally, earlier this week, a group of Indigenous and non-Indigenous activists set up their second blockade in a month across the single-access road to the Pine Gap Military Facility, which is situated situated sorry on Aranda land outside of Mpandwa Alice Springs. And today we are joined by Carmen, one of the activists who participated in the blockade and a member of Mpandwa for Palestine, to discuss the relationship between Pine Gap and the ongoing genocide of Palestinians, as well as the importance of direct action in solidarity with Palestinians struggling for liberation wow <laughs> yeah it's, uh... it's it's a packed show and i was just gonna say like um i was reflecting when i was editing the the second part of the the conversation with ian i was just, the, well, the one thing that kept coming up was the importance of understanding our history and how history is important for us to reflect on what we've done and because sometimes we can feel lost in the present. I feel, well, I have the tendency no, to, no, to feel you. lost at times, and it's real. It's, and the you know having remind like access to resources that can sort of remind you. Well, stuff like this has happened before. Yeah, and there's a way out, and we actually have the capacity to. to and 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 also reflecting on what you said earlier about the kids getting involved in collective action, and I think in terms of your development as a young person. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a fantastic thing. Yeah, and I mean, like, there's going to be the school strike next week again um, in solidarity with Palestine. And I know that uh, some government ministers, including one Peter Dutton, has, uh, yeah, really punched down. And Jason Clare, actually. They've they've both, yeah, 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 both Labour and Liberal have punched down on students by saying that they should be focusing on their education. And students are saying, baby, this is an education. Like, 100%. And also, like, you know, how, you know, how dare people assume that these people aren't brilliant and engaged, these young people. This is a demonstration of their brilliance and engagement, critical thinking skills, problem solving skills and their reasoning. They're not not playing pinball. Yeah. And and I think it was such a My Three Sons moment, like such a 50s like thing. Like, what are they doing not being at school? I I thought, well, guys, it's like, you know, when people characterize, you know, uh, people in Canberra that's that's why yeah because they make crappy comments like that totally I mean it and this you know you see this happen again and again around climate justice issues around all sorts of things where students are actually applying their critical thinking skills to take a stand on issues that are facing the world today yeah Yeah. Um, so really excited for all of that we might jump to a CSA and we'll come back to you shortly awesome This is a uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. (laughs) 
I direct that you all leave now. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 30th of November. Protests, strikes, lockouts continue around the country in solidarity with Palestinian people who continue to withstand horrific bombardment from Israel that has so far killed more than 15,000 people since early October. Yesterday marked the final day in a recently extended to six-day, quote, humanitarian pause, end quote, with anticipation that the truce may be further extended today. However, amidst the so-called pause, Palestinians have continued to face restrictions on movement, military raids on Jenin refugee camp, attacks from Israeli gunboats, and extremely limited humanitarian aid access. Hostage exchanges between Israel and Hamas have taken place in recent days, with Hamas returning 12 more Israelis and Israel returning 30 Palestinian hostages earlier this week. Uh, an inquiry, oh sorry, in other news, an inquiry into the Australian government's adherence to United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples has been undertaken over the past year. And a report released this week provides an important recommendations for the implementation of the declaration. The Joint Standing Committee on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, Islander Affairs Chair, Senator Patrick Dodson, said... At the heart of this report is a call for all Australian governments and civil society to engage with the rights of First, of First Peoples through the UN Declaration on Indigenous Peoples' Rights. The report calls for a development of a national action plan in consultation with First Nations people, improved education on Australian history and human rights, and the establishment of an independent process for truth-telling and agreement-making. Also in headlines, human rights groups are calling for the Indonesian government to end its judicial harassment against prominent human rights defenders Fatia Malidianti and Haris Azar. The charge relates to a segment on Haris's YouTube channel where Fatia and Haris discussed a report alleging the involvement of several national and multinational companies in mining operations in Intanjaya, Papua. The allegations included those affiliated with political figures such as Luhut Binsar Panjaitan, the coordinating minister of maritime and investment affairs, who raised defamation charges against Fatia and Harris. Both human rights defenders have experienced 28 hearings in the past seven months, and in a recent indictment hearing, the prosecutor for the case advised the court to, se- the court to center sentence, sorry, Fatia to three and a half years in prison and Harris to four years in prison. NARM-based Human Rights Law Center said this week they are, quote, extremely concerned about the indictment as this reveals just how dangerous it is to be a human rights defender in Indonesia. For merely speaking truth to power, seeking justice and accountability, and expressing evidence-based criticisms against the government, the likes of Fatia and Harris are being silenced, end quote. 
Along with 106 other human rights groups in the region, the Human Rights Law Center are calling on the Indonesian government to stop its criminalization of rights defenders and to refrain from enacting further harm against them. And in other news this week, a new report has found the legal aid sector in Australia is under increasing pressure and needs $484 million per year to meet unmet demand for legal assistance. The Justice on the Brink report found increasing demand for legal aid is being driven by population growth and increasing, uh, and increasing legal needs of people below the poverty line. With data showing the number of people accessing Legal Aid Commission websites and hotlines across Australia tripling in recent years. 20% of Legal Aid's national client base are First Nations people, and in the Northern Ter- Territory, that figure is close is, is around 80%. National Legal, Aid, National Legal Aid said investing in legal aid alongside First Nations community-controlled organisations is critical in meeting needs. And finally, in headlines, an estimated 3,000 people participated in a non-violent disruptive protest at the world's largest coal port earlier this week in Newcastle. The blockade was organised by climate justice group Rising Tide and was the largest civil disobedience protest for climate action in Australia's history. Police attended 109 people during the protest, including a 97-year-old and eight teenagers. Rising Tide spokesperson Zach Schofield said that, quote, until the Albanese government says no to new coal projects and agrees to tax the tens of billions in coal export profits to fund the transition, we will continue to disrupt the fossil fuel industry. The protest comes ahead of COP28 in Dubai, which starts today, with advocates saying that world leaders attending the COP should attend, uh, should take note that mass protests like this one are part of a global pushback for change and that the rights to peaceful assembly in the face of climate upheaval should not be threatened. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 30th of November, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Tune in to Health Sovereignty, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm. We're talking about what health, well-being and body sovereignty mean for multiply marginalised disabled people, their kin and communities living on unceded Indigenous lands with programming by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR and broader community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2023. Okay, the Common Social Change Library is the go-to portal for social change resources. Um, yeah, so they gather and share resources resource from many different sources and organisations from all around the world to uh, in all around the world in a user-friendly, accessible, portable portable portal. Sorry, last week we we aired our um, our first the first part of our conversation with Ian McIntyre and it was like it was a really great fun conversation and it was really informative because I, I didn't know anything about the Common Social Change Library and as I said earlier it was really important I guess the importance of history um, it was something that came up time and time again so last week um, we discussed uh, yeah uh, why it was important to be able to access information about social change struggles um, in common, um, how documenting struggles help us achieve social change in the future, and I also asked Ian if we could if we could reform our way to a more just society, and what are the first steps are in a, in planning a campaign. This week you'll hear 
about the types of types of resources available at the Common Social Change Library, who uses them, and the central role that history plays in planning and achieving social change. Yeah, just describe some of the resources you have available at the Social Change Library. Yeah, so, um, well, we've got over a thousand resources, which can be a little, wow. bit, a little bit daunting at times. And we, we are trying, you know, we do work to kind of group those in ways and stuff to make them kind of accessible. And as I say, to sort of make them useful to, to people who are sort of coming into this stuff for the first time and then also people who've been around a while and thinking, oh, how can we do things different or what's what's the latest? So we've got over a 1,000 resources. They're all online. Um, our focus is very much uh, a kind of practical how-to. Yep. So um, sometimes when people hear the word library, they sort of think, oh, that'll be a collection of like old flyers and old you know, magazines or something like that. Whereas our focus, we do have history stuff, but the focus with that is very much on what can, you know, how can history inspire us? So how can we learn from that history in what we're doing today? So, so it's very much kind of um, this practical how-to focus. Um, we've got different formats, you know, text, video and audio in general, but also, um, you know, not everything's an article, not everything's a documentary. We've got interviews, tip, okay. tip sheets, manuals, um, you know, kind of worksheets and activities. So I might, I might run through a few of our topics and that'll sort of pull people off flavour. So we've got a section on arts and creativity. So that's, you know, um, yeah, how can we bring, you know, music, um, yeah, visual forms of art and so forth as, you know, to kind of inspire us, to bring us together, to get our messages out, so that kind of creative side of things and also to make things fun because yeah. a lot of this work is, is can, can be, be pretty dire. Yeah, and a grind yeah. and, and when you are uh, trying to think of a way not to swear when I'm saying yeah. this, <laughs> you know, when, when, often when you're working around issues, you, you, it's either something really horrible that you're personally dealing with or you're putting yourself in a place where you're looking at some really horrible things. So, so how can you make, you know, that less horrible and keep everyone's spirits up? So, yeah, we've got arts and creativity. We've got a section on campaign strategy. So that's some of that stuff I was talking about. Section on coalition building. So how can we bring together people broadly? But yeah. when we often have uh, different experiences, different ways of doing things, um, you know, how can we make sure that we understand each other and, you know, we work together effectively. Um, communications and media, so we've got a section, a lot of, you know, around how do we get our messages out, how do we do that in a way that's going to resonate, you know, what audiences do we want to hear this and how can we do that in a way that's going to move them. A few other examples, digital campaigning, so that's obviously one that needs a lot of updating because yeah. <laughs> things keep, keep changing but it's a big part of it. Um, we've got a section on First Nations resources. Um, that The Commons, we bring together resources from all around the world but we are Australian based and, you know, we live in a settler colonial nation so people having an understanding of what that is and so we have a whole lot of um, resources about First Nations history and why different First Nations people have campaigned and, and you know, their kind of how-tos and tips and so forth. Fundraising and there's all the different ways you can do that, um, you know, and then I guess, you know, just one more would be theories of change. So that, that was that kind of stuff we were alluding to a bit earlier. And again, that's often an important part for groups to do, and my experience is a lot of groups I've been involved in, we've just assumed everybody thinks we will make change the same way. We've all got the same end goals. And actually nutting out a bit of like, okay, 
what's our personal beliefs, like what's important to me in terms of how I think it should happen, but also what's effective, you know, within that. Lots of resources, but, um, you know, a lot of it is, uh, as I say, kind of practical, like step by step, how do you do this? And then some of it, I guess, is more to do with, for want of a better term, like the art of campaigning. So that because there isn't a formula, (laughs) you know, there's some paths you can follow and there's definitely, we've got materials where people say movements often grow in this way, you know, they grow and then they have these kind of setbacks and sometimes people give up when the setbacks are there, but often there's a setback before you actually break through and have some kind of win. So there's all all that um, sort of stuff, but then within that, you know, we always have to sort of use our nous and you know, yeah. kind of work out, okay, what is the next move? And so some of the, a lot of the resources are kind of about helping you to think about that. So who are the people that are involved? Who, who, who's involved in this social change? Uh, you mean the library? Yeah, who, who the, uses the library? Okay, so who uses the library? Well, it's pretty varied, like people all over the world um you know like i say we're based in australia but we have people contribute their collections you know from organizations all around the world uh and we can see you know just from our basic stats and data analysis that we get hits um from everywhere um so yeah it's kind of hard to define is it younger people? Is it older people? Like, yeah, is, that's, is that's, there a, that's is there a hard age? one to say. Yeah, yeah. What's but, your feeling? I mean, I, I'm more. I've always been fascinated by. It. Yeah. Like, is, is it something that people grow out of? Yeah, well, that's interesting because certainly, I mean, in terms of our team, so yeah. so there's sort of five of us who who kind of regularly work on this, and then you know we have a much kind of broader network who who contribute. So. Generally, that probably skews a little bit older, but maybe that's because, um, you know, it's people who are wanting to share the things they've learned and, and kind of going, oh, bugger, I hope people don't, you know, yes. don't repeat this or yeah. whatever. Having said that, I can only go on some of our resources. Like I created a resource um, a few years back about school strikes. So, you know, obviously the climate strikes were happening, but I, I knew that there was a, a longer history of this and you know like when I was in high school we had a strike and and so that you know there was this history and so I sort of because I wanted to share that uh with the climate strikers but also just in general I suppose to say you know this isn't uh, a, a new tactic or strategy you know there's a tradition of this so you know and hopefully people can go wow we're not the first that's really cool <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. so yeah we kind of put that together and yeah I mean the feedback was that there were definitely older people who you know I suppose it was a little bit nostalgia oh yeah I remember in the 70s you know protesting against the Vietnam War and protesting against the cane and boys wanted to have long hair and you know <laughs> that kind of thing um, but also yeah it was something that um, you know apparently a lot of young younger school strikers kind of read and went, oh, wow, you know. And I suppose the other aspect to that article, and hopefully not going on too much of a tangent, was I wanted to show that school strikes hadn't just been used, um, you know, around big issues, you know, so that, so definitely been, you know, I remember during when Pauline Hanson first came on the scene, there were big anti-racist school walkouts, um, the marriage equality campaign, there'd been school walkouts, but, but also that there was this history of people using, 
you know, strikes and direct action within schools over horrible things that happen in schools and, you know, either trying to change those school, the school rules to be better or, um, you know, just deal with, right, we've got a teacher who's, like, doing really terrible things. Well, you know, other students who are doing terrible things, we're going to walk out, you know. We, we have that power too. So that's a bit of a long-winded thing of saying, I'm not sure exactly who okay. our, <laughs> who no, our audience I, is and what I think you answered it really is. well. What you're, what you're alluding to is that it depends on the campaign. Yes. And who's like, and, and it depends what the issue is. And I guess the other thing that comes to mind while you were to, is history. Do you, do you find that people don't appreciate history? Or do you think that there's an inclination to encourage us not to look back at history? Yeah. Do you think there's enough? Because I think history is incredibly important. I think we learn a lot about who we are and, and the way we do things and how we can adjust to the different. Be- because I, I believe it's true. Maybe the, the exact same thing hasn't happened 50 years ago, but something very similar yeah. has happened before. So do you th- okay, A, how important is history? <laughs> and B, do you think there's a movement like in, in sort of commercial life, wage slave life, to get us to not to think about the past? Mm, interesting. Look, look, I think you nailed it in terms of the, the importance. You know, if, if, if we want to know where we're at, we need to know what's happened in the past. And if... We, and that as people who are involved in social change, I think it's important to know that you're part of a tradition, you know, that, that there's a strength that comes from that. And also knowing, like, you know, the, the negative things like paternalism and so forth, you know, in, in, in today's movements and in the past. So how can we look at what was in the past and sort of go, okay, well, we don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so in terms of whether there's amnesia, I think... I mean, it's sort of an interesting one because in some ways, like, kind of commemoration of certain things, you know, Anzac Day or whatever, that, you know, has come right back in style. Maybe it's going out a little bit again, but, you know, like, you know, it sort of of was very much out in the 70s and the 80s and then, you know, and and similar Australia Day has sort of gone through this process of coming back. It felt like very much into fashion and now becoming uh, sort of, going out of fashion but also becoming known as something different, Asian Day. So so in some ways, you know, commemoration sort of comes and goes. There's certain aspects of history like genealogy has become such a huge – I mean, yeah. it's always been big but it's really become, you know, su- such a big thing. A commercial, definitely a commercial thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but then there's, I guess, the aspect that certainly myself as – you know, my own historical work that I do, but I think also the commons, is that we're really trying to emphasise that the positive things that we do have in society and the positive changes that we do have in society are, um, you know, the result of struggle and people working for them. And and that's where I think often the amnesia is. It's either just, oh, things were so much better back way back when and now they're kind of crap without going, well, how did they get better back way back when because you know you go yeah. far far enough back they were pretty bad you know military dictatorship convict colony you know you know so so i think that's a really important part of history it is kind of emphasizing firstly that yeah, it's people who make history and it's people who it's not easy but it's people who can you know by standing up demanding change and then forcing through that change it might be the politician who you know passes the final thing or it might be the company coming out and going oh we've decided to you know be you know more diverse or to do the right thing but almost always it, it takes somebody to to, to stand up and unfortunately you know it's almost always from a marginalized 
position. Yeah. So we've got a section on the on the commons. Um, yeah, I'm talking about things that I do on there. But anyway, it's no, another well, thing. we're learning about the common social yeah, so library. It's, so through. it's another another thing that I do is is sort of dates in history, and it's something I, I did here at 3CR when I was doing the sewer show, and we did 3CR calendars and diaries and stuff, and I've kind of continued that on with um, with the commons. So on social media, we kind of share this. I think that's a great thing, by the way, because I, I always I follow the working class history because I I, yep. I find it really inspiring, actually. So yeah, go on, sorry. Yeah, so we have these kind of dates in Australian. Um, social change history, and then we group them all together on a web page, and that web page is named after the Kev Carmody song, you know, from little things, big things grow. So, so part of the history stuff that we do is also to show, yeah, you know, it's important to know that that change has happened and to be inspired by it, but it's also come out of, you know, people had to do hard grunt work uh, and to do it. And I guess the other thing with history is we also have to remember, you know, we need it, it's important to look at what do movements do when they are big, you know? Like, that's not the end point. So how do we sustain our movements? Um, what can we achieve while they're big? You know, what kind of ebbs and, and flows do they go through? And uh, one last thing I'll say on the history is is with the Commons again, you know, we, we have global materials and a global audience. We are based in Australia and, and one of the things, um, you know, the cultural cringe hasn't gone away in many respects in Australia and that still applies to activism and people often still look overseas for, for answers and inspiration and that's great you know we can all learn from one another but but you know it's good to know what happened on our own turf <laughs> and, and to understand that innovation well they're unique conditions aren't they here yeah, yeah. and also the innovation and action can come out of anywhere it can come out of some small town in Australia, it doesn't come out of the, the big world um, kind of capitals. So, and, and lots of, you know, things have been invented here and, you know, which have gone overseas and stuff. So, that we, you know. Yeah, so that was um, the second part of our conversation with Ian McIntyre from the Common Social Change Library, where we discussed um, the type of, types of resources available at the Common Social Change Library, who uses them, and the central role that history plays in planning and achieving social change. Now, I just wanted to provide a quick little news update that you're probably not going to hear um, through mainstream media, but uh, whistleblowers, uh, activists, and, oh my goodness, I always forget what WACA stands for, whistleblowers, activists, and communities alliance um, organizers uh, attended, uh, or sorry, engaged in an incredible action last night where the Israeli embassy was dining out in Narm at uh, Crown Plaza um, and a group of activists um, came through with banners saying stop arming Israel, free Palestine, um, disrupted that dinner and, you know, basically made sure to uh, let people know that uh they were not going to be dining out and living in luxury and uh, pretending that this uh, crisis of occupation and genocide wasn't happening, especially, you know, on stolen land here to, uh, you know, the conceit of, uh, you know, living it up yeah. in, in Narm on stolen Wurundjeri and Bunurong country um, while there is a genocide going on that, uh, you know, you as an embassy member... Um, is involved in effectively whitewashing yeah. um, for the Australian public. I think um, just want to shout out yeah. Waka members uh, for their incredible direct action work. That's incredible. Yeah. And uh, now we might jump into a CSA. <laughs> 
What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Love that song. Um, all right. And now we're going to just have a bit of a chat. Spike, do you want to jump into it? Yeah, yeah. So, um, like, I've been, unempl- so I've been unemployed for the last six months and sort of was in community health for, uh, yeah, almost seven years. And so I've been looking for the work in the last, yeah, like pretty um, – well, I was working. Well, I haven't. I wasn't looking that hard, but in the last maybe month or two, I have been. I've, it's been a pretty difficult process, and just reflecting on the value of peer work, in 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 the sort of the community health sector, and how much less the wages are for community for peer workers, as compared to like case managers. Um, what was the other? What was the other sort of? Um, yeah, case managers, what they call specialists and yeah. educators, and I'm thinking, well, that's part of your role. If when you when you, when you engage in peer work, you're supporting people. Um, in a lot of ways, you're you're working, you're going along the, the journey with the person that you're working with. Because I, I think clients are pretty, you know, a cold word, but yeah. So yeah. the people that you work, you you, suppo- you should be going on that journey with them. Um, and I was just reflecting on and and just. The whole unemployment benefit, unemployment benefit thing, as opposed to a living wage. Yeah, and I was just, I was just thought, yeah, I think we don't talk about this a lot. Yeah, I mean, it is really, you know, first of all, uh, on your on your point around uh, paying peer workers less, and then having this uh, this privileged salary that is um, sort of carved off for people that are case managing in yeah. like a top down kind of way, or um, for quote unquote specialists who are actually, you know, very rarely people with lived expertise on on the matter that they're they're working on. It's uh, it is really ridiculous where the lived expertise becomes something that almost it, it's almost a site that the community sector can capitalize off the care that people have based out of their like horizontal understanding of people's experiences yeah. to then extract labor out of them. I mean, this is the model that the community sector works, um, you know, works within generally where um, wages are generally lower in the community sector because people care. And so they can, you know, more labor can be extracted out of them for lower wages because they care. But then particularly so for people that are doing actually the hardest work and the most involved work. It's it's actually grinding because because of the, of the shared lived experience you you can relate so hard to what's happening in front of you and that sort of emotional um, sort of it, it can be taxing. 
And when that's not recognized, it makes it even more difficult because not a lot of management who make so much more than the peer workers know how to support the people that's that's doing the peer work. Yeah, it's almost like what happens is peer workers are then collectively managed by someone else within the organization who's like, oh, well, they can't be properly objective. Like they play an important role, but they can only do so much rather than recognizing their full skill set, you know, and recognizing that not just through their role, but also through the way they're remunerated for that role. Yeah, I mean, I just think about how organizations like Sisters Inside work, which is completely different where it's just like you – you know, looking at how Debbie Kilroy, who has experience of yeah. being incarcerated herself, um, you know, brings that expertise um, into these both activist and then like, quote unquote, professional in the legal sense spaces and how people are able to be fairly compensated for the work that they do um, while also being recognized as doing impactful and life-changing work it's because it's such a big journey to come from where you were to actually find employment and then once you're employed to then become active in that space to try and achieve fair wages for the so i guess the way i'm i'm conceptualizing this is that like you've come from where a position where you've been accessing support yet you finally find work when you find the work you realize well hang on I feel like I'm being used here, and then it becomes your job, and so I, to you know get into get involved with the union movement to sort of say, guys, why aren't why isn't our labour, you know, v- valued? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is what what happens when it's people from outside communities of experience, like lived experience, are the ones that are leading those services rather than day to day basis. Yes. Rather than people who actually have that expertise leading those services and being able to say, hey, look, um, you know, we understand that there are particular structures of care and support that need to be built around um, peers that are doing the work because we recognize the different kind of, um, you know, both employment related but also emotional labor that people take on. And the tough thing, you know, what I found really difficult was when you would be talking to someone about, uh, like, whether it was a supervisor or a manager, about your last interaction, and and it'd be like, well, you're you're you're, you're speaking to the choir or you're preaching to the converted. This sort of conversation to shut you down, it's sort of like, no, you know, this isn't going to get any further, because, as you just said, Priya, that you sort of like you don't understand how the system works, man, and it's like, dude. Yeah, it's it's incredibly frustrating because you've just come out of a conversation with someone that's really sort of hit that really that's really pinpointed an, an experience whether that's they feel like they're not especially not feeling like you're not being heard, which is so fundamental to the whole health process. Yeah, it's really frustrating. No, no, I mean, and it's it is really like a. The idea that you can have an outsider objective analysis just because you have a degree and no lived ex- like all of a sudden it's it's saying that like not having that lived expertise is somehow a benefit because you can see the bigger picture. And it's like people have been seeing the bigger picture, like people who are living through it all have analyses of the system. They yeah. just might not be framing it in the same words. hundred percent. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just a reflection on yeah, that that sort of work. 
and and how difficult it can be. And I guess if you if you have if you have a peer worker as a colleague, recognize them and value them because that that the road to get to where they're at has has can can be a, a tough one. And yeah. Respect your peer workers. Yeah, and fight for them to get equal pay to you. Yeah, man. Awesome. That's awesome. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Salam be Hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. We are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.42 in the morning and we are now joined by independent queer researcher Dr. Shoshana Rosenberg to talk about disability and trans solidarity with Palestine in the face of Israel's ongoing violent occupation, exploring the connections between disability justice, trans freedom and liberation for Palestine. Now, we're going to be covering some distressing content around state violence since we're going to be talking about genocide as a mass disabling event. So if you do need to speak to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners can call 13YARN. That's 139276. 139276. And queer listeners can call QLife on 1-800-184-527. That's 1-800-184-527. And uh, if you uh, feel like you might uh, not sort of have the capacity to listen to a conversation about uh, disability, queerness, and what's happening in Palestine at the moment, uh, you can join us in about uh, 12 to 15 minutes. Uh, But for now, hello, Shoshana. Good morning. Or should I say Dr. Rosenberg? Oh, I, I beg you to say Shoshana. <laughs> well, thank you very much for for joining us. Um, I really, yeah, really appreciate you making the time. I know this is um, a difficult and grinding topic to talk about. I mean, it's a difficult and grinding situation. And um, we've been discussing this, um, I guess, over the, over the past few days, but also kind of... Um, across conversations that we've had since October 7th. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think something that, that kind of slips out of view under these conditions of such urgency um, and such absolute tragedy and violence is the fact that genocide is a mass disabling process. And this relates to both what we're seeing in Gaza as well as in the West Bank. And listeners might be familiar with you know, long-standing shoot-to-maim policies that the um, Israeli occupation have um, explicitly deployed uh, f- beginning in the in the 2018 Great March of Return. Um, 
But also, you know, we've seen the destruction of health and other social infrastructure in Gaza that contributes to this um, this disabling context. So I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit to understanding the Israeli occupation of Palestine as a disability justice issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it, it's very interesting because um, you mentioned the shoot to main policy, which, you know, we, we know was kind of made a, an actual visible policy. But we know that the reality is that every genocidal regime, and Israel is a, a genocidal regime, has sadism at its core, negative sadism at its core. Um, and that means that actually shooting to kill is less satisfying than actually ensuring that people are alive but suffering and incapable of defending themselves. And that's partly what we're seeing. So, yes, in 2018 or whenever it was, the Israeli government officially said, oh, we're shooting people in the knees, we're making people disabled. But that has always been the case, and that is what we're seeing. So, you know, control by controlling people by killing them is one thing, but for in order for, for a regime to actually have lasting impact, it needs to also make it clear, I will maim you, I will disable you, we will make it so that even if you want to fight back, you will not be capable of fighting back. And that is what we're seeing here with the destruction of hospitals, with the killing of doctors and nurses, with the shoot to main policy, with kneecapping people, with, you know, making sure that people are killed uh, who aren't killed are hurt in such a way that they have amputations, that they have, you know, all and all everything that comes from that, the chronic pain, the trauma, the I, I don't even want to say PTSD because there's no post, mm. the constant trauma response that you're sort of forced into. All of that is disabling and all of that is baked into what Israel is trying to do with Palestinians. They're not just trying to annihilate them. They're trying to ensure that future generations cannot fight back. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, when you sort of get into the the granular kind of level of control in particular um, that is that is exercised over um, over the Gaza Strip, you know, when we're when we're looking at things like, you know, people might be familiar now with uh, with the fact that Israel has been um, managing the caloric intake, for example, of yeah. of people in the Gaza Strip, and thinking about the different ways that um, that having such um, such oversight over um, basic infrastructure, over people's access to food, over people's access to water, over people's access to healthcare, um, creates a context that is disabling. Um, I mean, members of the Disability Justice Network of Australia published a statement of solidarity with Palestine in 2021 in Overland. And this was during the uprising um, around settler encroachments, particularly into the Sheikh Jarrah and other Palestinian neighborhoods. And that statement included an emphasis on attending to the disabling conditions that Palestinians are constantly subjected to, as you've talked about. But how does this acknowledgement then compel particular orientations of solidarity from disabled folks elsewhere, including yourself? Yeah, I mean, that's a very important question, because as much as I think it's important to talk about the fact that Israel is intentionally and has been from the start intentionally not just killing, but also having a focus on ensuring that people are disabled, I also want to make it clear that 
and 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 this is perhaps in some way where Israel's statism has gotten in the in the way of them. Israel's inhumanity has gotten in the way of it, of of seeing that actually disabled people are still activating. Disabled people are still involved in these movements in Palestine and out of Palestine, and I think that that's that's partly what we need to 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 look at. And in some ways, that is you know, and and this constant refrain that Palestine is freeing us can also be seen here. Palestine is freeing us because it is showing us people without limbs, people in wheelchairs, people who are who require assistance to literally move from A to B, who are still not just being cared for by other people, but who still have agency and who are still part of a community and who are still part of organizing for a free Palestine, again, both from within Palestine and in the diaspora. Mm, absolutely. And I, I was wondering if you could maybe speak to how you've sort of seen um, seen this kind of play out in, in your own communities among disabled folks in so-called Australia. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I've, so I've been very lucky that, um, you know, from probably maybe about a, a week and change after the escalation on October 7th, I was asked to provide some support from my sickbed, where I have spent um, several months now. Um, I'm largely housebound. I, there are days where I'm completely bedbound. Um, but I got asked, hey, can you help us from where you are through your phone? And it's been one of those things that has been very liberating and very interesting to sort of think about. And I'm very lucky to be involved with pre-disabled and less physically disabled activists who see the value of not just all people, and in, within that including seeing the value of disabled people, but actually see the specific value of what disabled people can bring to the front, which is, um, and this is actually my my girlfriend, uh, Kate Perrin, always says this, which is the one thing that most disabled people have is time. And to me, I think that that is something that um, I'm hoping increasingly more and more people see value. And we do have, I'm in bed, so there's a lot of things that I can't do, but there's one thing that I can do, which is be on my laptop, be on my phone, calling people, emailing, editing videos, making infographics, whatever it is that's necessary, working with media, which is becoming increasingly important. Mm. Those are the sort of roles that um, I'm seeing more and more people sort of really see the value of disabled people stepping into and assisting those disabled people to step into those roles. Yeah, I mean, like, as when you when you spoke about this idea of Palestine freeing us as well, um, this is sort of, you know, thinking about the supporting and acting in solidarity with Palestinian liberation. Um, I think what you've been talking about really makes me think about the idea that what we're doing is trying to create a world where we can all live free, where we can all live well, where we can all be valued, where we can all be in community um, and have what we need to survive. And so there is a massive kind of opportunity for a reorientation of relationships and the way that we are in community with each other. And that uh, in part happens through communities of collective struggle. Um, Absolutely. And so I also know that, um, you know, both as a queer trans Jewish person and as a leading researcher in transgender and queer health in so-called Australia, you've got beef with Israeli pinkwashing. So 
I was wondering, pivoting to that, how have you seen that factor into the current phase of intensified Israeli colonial violence? And why is it so important to kind of resist this with an acknowledgement of the interconnection between that and disability justice in pursuit of Palestinian liberation? Mm. Well, it's interesting because the first thing that I'd like to share with you is that I've been speaking with other um, trans anti-Zionist activists and advocates who are also in a similar sort of intersection, I suppose, to me. And one of the things that we've been talking about, and this was a conversation that I had with another good friend of mine, about this and only last night, is that one of the crossovers is that we are slowly seeing this increasing unwillingness to have a quote-unquote balanced debate about these things. So one of the main crossovers for me always when I'm looking at things like other liberation movements and, and the sort of touch points between them and trans liberation is that we are in that it is these groups are put in such oppressed positions but not only are they put in oppressed positions their oppressors are also being given equal platform um and so it's in this and and we're seeing that with pinkwashing too so suddenly we have quote-unquote lgbt people particularly from within israel um posting pro-IDF content and, um, you know, saying, well, maybe it's good for the gays. Maybe the military is good for the gays. Look, the first rainbow flag in Gaza, which is a lie, which is a, which we just, we just know is a lie. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is where a lot of the crossover, that is where a lot of the crossover comes in. It's, it's about liberation from oppression, but it's also about this dynamic where we are constantly forced to um, face our oppressors in supposedly, you know, sort of balanced ways. You know, we're su- we're supposed to accept. I'm supposed to accept having you know trans exclusionary radical feminists on the same panel as me. Palestinians are expected to have pro Israel Zionists on the same panels as them, on the same news coverage as them, in the same articles as them. Um, and that alone is absolutely ridiculous and also telling of how little these kind of groups actually get listened to by the general public, that you would even entertain the thought of putting a Palestinian whose life is going to be forever changed by this genocide in the same room, article, discussion, forum, whatever, as someone who wants that person and their entire family killed in the name of a God that they don't even believe in on the land that they are not from and their ancestors are also not from. Yeah, I mean, it is... It's kind of uh, amazing seeing this false equivocation that that comes up all the time around around Palestine, and um, you know, would it would be it would be ridiculous um, to sort of see this happen around disability justice, and yet we see it happen all the time as well in terms of, you know, when we were talking about COVID policies and equivocation about uh, protecting community versus, um, you know this idea of uh, liberty and freedom of people rather than looking at how we reorient the conversation and center, um, you know, the people that are first and worst and most impacted by these particular, you know, crises uh, to think differently about how we transform the conditions under which people are oppressed. Um mm-hmm. 
So finally, I guess, do you have any messages that you would like to send, um, particularly to disabled listeners, about finding sustainable ways to stay with the trouble and act in solidarity with Palestine? I mean, my message to both cripples and people who have cripples in their life is come together and and do it and make those spaces so that more disabled people, so that people who are very crippled, who are very mentally unwell, who cannot get out of the house, whatever it is, consider that our involvement in these kind of movements is not only like a cool thing that it would be great if it would happen, but it is essential in our absence and our silence, our forced silence in these spaces is shocking increasingly so because we're seeing so many people coming you know out of Gaza who are who are disabled who are in this those do those people deserve to be out in the world then you my disabled friend also to be out in the world and you my allied my cripple allied friends deserve to have us with you and need to think about how do we include people how do I include bedbound friend how do I include my friend who's too autistic for protests. You need to think about these things because our, because we have not just intrinsic value as human beings, but often our perspectives, our skill sets are radically different due to our disabilities. And they bring a lot of, uh, they bring so much more to activism than I think a lot of people would even consider. 100%. Shoshana, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us about this and to send that message of encouragement um, to other folks that are listening, because I think it is, uh, it is again, a reminder about the different skill sets and talents and energies that we bring to to collective struggle. Like we can't all be acting in the same way, but we can all act in some way. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on this morning. No problem. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. And that was independent queer researcher Dr. Shoshana Rosenberg, who joined us to talk about disability and trans solidarity with Palestine in the face of Israel's ongoing violent occupation. And we explored some of the connections between disability justice, trans freedom and liberation for Palestine. So this interview did cover some distressing content around state violence. And if you do need to speak to someone about this, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners can call 13YARN. That's 139276. 139276. And queer listeners can call QLIFE on 1800 184 527. That's 1-800-184-527. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Tune in to Health Sovereignty, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm. We're talking about what health, well-being and body sovereignty mean for multiply marginalised disabled people, their kin and communities living on unceded Indigenous lands with programming by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR and broader community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2023. Published or Not has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. 
with local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. I've been working on my rewrite, that's right. I'm going to change the ending. Going to throw away my title and toss it in the trash. All right, listeners, I always get sheepish about plugging things that I'm involved in, uh, but I do want to let people know, especially if you are a staff member or student at RMIT University, that a couple of us staff members uh, in collaboration with RMIT Students for Palestine are going to be organizing a teach-in today, or we have rather organized a teach-in today in solidarity with Palestine. And I would really encourage people to come along, especially, um, you know, if you can bring a colleague or a fellow student, a friend who hasn't necessarily thought about this before uh, or thought about this in terms of how they can connect where they're at with what they can do and what they have heard about Palestine and what is happening. Um, so uh, we're going to be listening from listening, sorry, to some incredible speakers, including uh, Xavier and Annika from RMIT Students for Palestine. We're going to be listening to Uncle Ihab, who has very generously offered to join us, taking a, uh, a quick sojourn from the Sit Intifada on the steps of Parliament, which has been going since the escalation began. Uh, we're also going to hear from Mark and Shane from Free Palestine Melbourne, and they uh, had been conducting their very long-standing and fantastic, uh, you know, presence outside RMIT University in protest of the university's partnership with Elbit Systems, uh, which uh, the university has recently announced uh, did not go ahead or is not in progress. Um we're also going to be joined by John from Wage Peace to learn a little bit more about fighting the military industrial complex. And finally, we are going to be hearing from Ahmed from the uh, from the Unimel from Palestine Organizing Group and to hear a bit about the incredible organizing they have been doing to try and end the University of Melbourne's partnership with Lockheed Martin, uh, which uh, is, I believe, the largest Lockheed Martin base um, in terms of uh, research and, and development outside of the United States. Now, the reason that we're doing this at RMIT is while the Elbit campaign, it appears to be a settled matter, uh, RMIT University has partnerships with multiple, uh, multiple weapons companies, including Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, BAE Systems, uh, Boeing Defense, so many different uh, organizations that are involved in and complicit in the genocide of Palestinians and also the genocide of people um, in different areas of the world as well. Um, so really encourage people to get along at 12 p.m. today at Bowen Street at RMIT University. And uh, we will come back to you shortly with our next segment. Accented Women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. 
Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy, Aha, Pansexual, Knowing No Boundaries of Sex or Gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. All right, we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8.05 in the morning, and we are now joined by Ronnie Kareni, who is a West Papuan activist, broadcaster, and advisor and honorary fellow at the University of Wollongong's West Papua Project. Um, and who... Yeah, I see you shaking your head, but I know this is all your your these are your qualifications. Um, uh, who joins us to share some reflections on this struggle for liberation for West Papua in the lead up to December first, West Papuan Independence Day. Now, December first marks the anniversary of the first raising of the Morning Star flag, and this year it's going to be commemorated in Narm, Melbourne, with the Morning Star ceremony, which kicks off at four p.m. tomorrow at Fed Square. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Priya, and good morning, Spike. It's a great honor to be back in this space. So great to see you, man, honestly. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> I was like, whether well, I'm going to be on the phone, but I'm in town, so yeah. I might as well to come and um, just serenade myself in the space that I missed a lot, particularly the people that really look after this yeah, amazing totally. station. Yeah. Oh, I'm really glad. At first, I was like, am I going to call you? And then you were like, I'm running. So uh, thank you for... <laughs> Thank you for coming in. Glad you got a moment to catch your breath. So, I mean, we spoke last on air quite a while ago, but since then, um, I I wanted to touch on the fact that we've seen the release of West Papuan independence activist Victor Yemo from imprisonment by the Indonesian state. And this happened on the 23rd of September. So could you maybe tell us a bit about the feeling around Mr. Yemo's release and how it's energized the West Papuan struggle for liberation and against racism? Oh, yeah, certainly uh, since it's released, it is a welcoming sense of uh, hope and that spirit of resilience back again as as people would be sharing on social media how many thousands, particularly the youths, coming out to welcome him, even under kind of like the condition where this, they didn't allow in, initially the state authorities, particularly the security forces, but they couldn't stop the number of people. Um, but also in saying that, um, Victor Yemo has become a, like a, a symbol of hope as well amongst the youths, yeah. uh, particularly um, his commitment and the vision. And just last month or two, three weeks ago, uh, Liberty Victoria um, nominated him as uh, the nominee or the person winning the MT Chair Awards, and basically that's to recognize his work and also uh, what he does, particularly anti-racism protest and uh, organizing peaceful rallies um, to, for West Papua's right to self-determination. And so he's, he's being awarded for, uh, an, for the MT Chair Awards um, here in Australia. It's also a, a big um, statement and, of, or in a testament of what he does that really inspired yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think he he sort of stands as a as a beacon of hope for um, so many West Papuan political prisoners, because there are so many political prisoners um, who have been um, arrested and who have been, you know, arbitrarily charged around just the independence and anti-racism work that they're doing. Um, so actually on that, I, you know, be thinking about political prisoners, thinking about the current exchange of uh, hostages in uh, between uh you know, Israel and Hamas. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe speak to the importance of solidarity between West Papuans and Palestinians and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, because I know that the bonds of solidarity runs deep between your communities. So could you talk a little bit about that in this present moment? Yeah, well, firstly, in terms of what is happening um, in the Middle East with the um, people of uh, Palestine, like as indigenous people um, of that land, I can relate and uh, paying that respect to the resilience uh, for many of those um, who are still continuing to kind of like find spaces to have that voice uh, be heard. And I know here many have organized and um, you know, on the 10th of December, I'll be also speaking in one of the panels on the 10th of December. And also in terms of the solidarity um, with the First Nations, particularly with that land, so First Nations and indigenous people like um, Tasnim is one of our, a good friend that over the past 12 months where we share our stories, the struggles. And then with what's happening now, he, as we see what is unfolding, 1st of December particularly, um, I'm reaching out as well to see if um, some of our the organizers of the uh, Palestinian rallies in Nam um, could come as well for our event, but I know for sure in in Mianjin uh, in Brisbane um, there'll be a dropping of the banner flag of West Papua Palestine and the Aboriginal flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I know that West Papua isn't uh, a Pacific nation, but I was just watching the Pacific Games on, on public TV. And it's like a really ce- it was a celebration of people's culture and 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 they're you know, them coming together and, and stuff like that. Have you got has the West Papua movement for in the, uh, for recognition? Has that got any support from the the region? On the grassroots, certainly the people are supporting, are fully behind and um, in support with the people of West Papua. Uh, but when it comes to intergovernmental or government. Um, policies, foreign policies particularly, that is where it kind of like differs a okay. little bit. But looking at it in terms of like, for example, uh, the Pacific Games, there hasn't been that inclusive inclusion of West Papua, but mm. if we look at it on the arts and cultural yeah. engagement, yes, there okay. is a strong kind of like engagement in that. Yeah, I mean, that's another one of those interesting resonances that I see between West Papua and Palestine, where, for example, like people have normalization deals at the level of government with the state of Israel. But actually, the populations of, you know, various uh, Middle Eastern countries are with Palestine, even though their governments are having normalization deals with Israel. So that's a very interesting kind of parallel there. Um, yeah, and yeah. on that note, like for like particularly for December one in West Papua as well, the youths are coming out with the flags of both flags as well, and so that's kind of like the message. Like I can see, like in terms of the youth, um, are really propelling the movement, but also yeah. l- 
are conscious of the similar issues that is happening beyond Indonesian borders, um, not just within West Papua, but yeah, learnings from others. And so that's really amazing um, to reach in that, yeah, looking at it on that scope as well. So Yeah, totally. And I mean, um, you know, we've been speaking a bit about December 1st, and it's going to be the 62nd anniversary of West Papua independence and the first raising of the Morning Star flag. So um, do you want to reflect maybe on the importance of that date and how you're feeling in the lead up? Yeah, particularly it's been 62 years. And for many West Papuans, it's kind of like, um, like that fatigue is there. It's kind of like reaching that point of like, yes, it's way, way past like half a century. And it's kind of like, almost yeah. heading towards that. And by looking at the policies of the state, um, like many other uh, countries around the world, they are tightening up those policies, like introducing IT laws, so freedom of expression, um, even peaceful assembly <clears throat> are really closing down. Not only just the indigenous people, but for workers, um, even minority uh, religious groups are even under judicial harassment. And given that West Papua, like in 2021, uh, the review of the special autonomy law, that has really given a lot of uh, doors for foreign investors, multinational companies to really going in and blindly just any projects that they see that they could make money out of the people or exploit or plunder the land. That's what is happening happening so in terms of 62 years reflecting on that um that's the kind of like the that memory of suffering but at the same time as also reflecting 62 years now we are seeing the youths propelling the movement and like we've spoke about victor yemo but there are many others even um like i can see myself like i'm in my 40s but i can see the younger ones are really stepping up like here in um there are youths like Cindy uh, Makabori, she's an amazing youth, um, women kind of like voice here in the space. So it's kind of like it shows that this struggle will kind of like, you know, continues, but it's propelled by the youth. So it's really great as well to see as well. One key area is like the indigenous solidarity or that connection through that. Because mm. that in itself, when we talk about sovereignty, uh, never see that. In terms of the Western definition, you know, nation state, but when we talk about the LORE, this December ones, the highlight or the ceremony of this is we're bringing the Yolngu uh, Banambiri, which is Morningstar. Mm. And so the, the person who is the dancer, the singer of the Morningstar is here. And so he will lead that space, uh, an auntie or an elder, Joy Mephi, with her descendants will also do the welcoming. Of course, uh, brother Robbie Thorpe will be there. And, but the First Nations artists coming together, particularly to have that ceremony around the sand and with the story of the morning star. So that, that is the, the essence of this um, December one. And I am proud that it, it will be a historic one, that mm -hmm. first time we're bringing in people that kind of like really have that, uh, who, are, who have that sky law yeah. uh, connected from yeah, West Papua, Torres Strait, and 
definitely yeah. Yonglin mainland. Yeah, it's kind of incredible thinking about how those stories, um, you know, and and political relationships have been so long-standing in terms of how those narratives come through through the you know storylines. Um, just because we got to wrap yeah. up in a second, can you tell listeners um, about how they can uh, attend tomorrow and find out a bit more? Yes. Yeah, so come tomorrow, 4 p.m. is the opening ceremony or the smoking ceremony. Uh, the info is on Fed Square, um, social media, even on the Free West Papua campaign, um, social media, or just come down there at 4 p.m., bring your placards, banners, um, free West Papua, free Palestine, and also in solidarity with uh, the indigenous people. Um, and come and celebrate. It's a day of celebration for West Papua, as well as reflecting on the uh, memory of suffering of many who have lost in the struggle, particularly just under that morning star flag. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much. And um, yeah, encourage people to get along. We'll have the information in our show notes. And as you said, uh, free West Papua and free Palestine. Really good to see. Tune in to Health Sovereignty, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm. We're talking about what health, well-being and body sovereignty mean for multiply marginalised disabled people, their kin and communities living on unceded Indigenous lands with programming by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR and broader community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2023. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM for our final interview of today. Um, And so earlier this week, a group of Indigenous and non-Indigenous activists set up their second blockade in a month across the single access road to Pine Gap Military Facility, which is situated on Arndaland outside of Mbanto Alice Springs. And today we're going to be joined by Carmen, one of the activists who participated in the blockade and a member of Mbanto for Palestine to discuss the relationship between Pine Gap and the ongoing genocide of Palestinians, as well as the importance importance of direct action in solidarity with Palestinians struggling for liberation. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. Um, So I thought maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about the history of the Pine Gap base and about its relationships to colonization on both Arndalands and in Palestine. So why is it such an important target for disruption? Um, So Pine Gap was um, built in the 60s and it's always been a controversial Thing. There was a lot of um, opposition by Arunda 
traditional owners at the time. Um, there always has been. And um, it's a very secretive... They run very secretive operations out of there that serve the US military primarily. Um, and they do also collect information for ASIO. Um, but since its inception, they've been um, involved in, um, you know, genocide and, and, and the brutality of war, which has never been supported by local traditional owners here um, or the broader community. Um, at the moment, they're focusing... One of their focuses is on Gaza and is on assisting Israel um, in the Zionist occupation over there. And um, what they do is they they collect data from satellites which primarily focus over that Swana region, the um, Southwest Asia and Northern um, African region. And they're, um, they're also, they have the like, capacity to surveil people and collect intelligence and communications between people, um, but they also can coordinate missile targets and things like that and, and intercept um you know, like if if uh, if Lebanon was um, sending missiles over, um, they could intercept it from Pine Gap. Like they can give information mm. to Israel to intercept it from Pine Gap. So they're a highly sophisticated um, information and surveillance, um, yeah, military base here in the in the middle of the desert here um, next to Alice Springs. So there's been a lot of opposition over the years. There was a peace camp um, set up in the 70s that was run by local Aranda women and they made a call out to women um, across the country and they were, you know, they, they held that blockade for quite a long time. It's a very famous blockade. So they've been, you know, the community doesn't want them here um, and it has been in opposition since its inception mm. um, against the, the sort of brutality that that um, that comes out of that place. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, what you've, you've talked about um, also touches on the fact that this is not... This is not some abstract or tangential relationship. Um, it is directly implicated. Uh, Pine Gap is directly implicated in what is happening um, to Palestinians now, to the genocide that's being perpetrated there through, um, you know, through the use of uh, tracking and, and surveillance technologies that are operated out of Pine Gap. So you were involved yeah. in the direct action shutting down the main access road to Pine Gap this past Monday, and I understand that this is the second blockade action Mpantua for Palestine have undertaken since the beginning of Israel's escalation of genocidal violence in Gaza. Um, so can you tell us a bit about how Monday went down? What were you hoping to achieve and what happened? So on Monday morning... At about 4.30, it was about 30 people um, that went down. We set up really quickly, very organised um, protest. So there was two people, myself included, that locked onto a concrete barrel. And then behind us was set up a roadblock and everybody was in high vis And it was sort of this idea of, um, as a community, we're making a community safety intervention. So it was all about, like, um, shutting down these criminal... Um, operations that are happening at this particular work site. So it looked very much as people were approaching, it would have looked like um, looked like a normal roadblock, like hard hats, high vis, all that sort of stuff. And then as people got closer, they would have seen that we were locked onto the barrel and we were wearing press vests um, to honour the press in the Palestinian um, journalists who are, you know, coming under like brutal siege themselves. Their families are being killed just for trying to get the word out, the truth out. Um, and so as people were approaching, they would have seen, you know, banners saying free Palestine and stop the genocide and that we're shutting down this particular facility because of war crimes. Um, and then throughout the 
day we were reading, you know, um, the names of the Palestinian martyrs and we never got past people that were under the age of one, you know, in all mm. in that all day of reading that out. And we, we listed war crimes, um, you know, the, the displacement, the the broad-scale Holocaust massacres, the, the targeting of children. We, we were listing all of the sort of um, war crimes that have been happening, not just in the recent escalation of seven weeks, but of, you know, the last 75 years. And so mm. there was also vigil elements there. We were, we were holding vigil. Um, we were burning frankincense and we were burning candles. And um, it was about seven hours that we held the road there and we stopped about 100 or so workers from being able to attend work that day. Um, but it was very peaceful. It was very... There was no sort of... Um, neither from the police or from us, there was no sort of aggression. Um, it was just, I think, once they arrived, saw that, saw that we were locked on, knew that it was the second time mm. that we'd done it and that they were in for, you know, a number of hours to try to get us off. I think it was quite a um, de-escalating sort of way to do it because they could see, okay, we're here for hours, we're not going to do argy-bargy and start pushing people off the road. They just sort of, you know, got to the task of trying to get the fireys in to get us off. So we realised it's actually quite a good strategy to to have something really solid on the road like that. Um, in this place anyway, it could be different in other, in other cities. I know the police behave differently um, yeah. in different contexts. But, yeah, it was quite, it was a very peaceful sort of, um, very peaceful um, action. Yeah, I mean, and it's it, it's it's amazing what you guys achieved in terms of you know blocking off that road for for seven hours and, um, you know, just just by um, having a clear and coordinated plan and understanding that that holding that space and um, you know preventing people from going to work at the facility for that time was seven hours um, where hopefully uh, there were you know the. the the surveillance apparatus was undermined for for that time. Um, so I guess um, because we're coming up to the end of our show, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the uh, you know the importance of direct action in general um, and about holding space for honoring the lives of Palestinians, and also whether you wanted to share any messages with our audience in Narm Melbourne. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think, as we know, there was no there was no ceasefire or humanitarian pause, and I hope that, you know, it's a global movement. We can't afford to become complacent. We're in an upward rising um, wave that's gathering momentum at the moment, and we have to um, push harder and harder at the moment because they're, you know, we we sort of need each other. Like there was actually another action in Melbourne at the time supporting what we were doing, a mm. um, bunch of people blockaded um, an office. And we need to keep um, Palestinian sovereignty at the centre of everything that we're doing. You know, um, people are being dehumanised in the press, on the ground, you know, and, and we need to hold the press accountable and we need people to find the sort of courage that Palestinians are teaching us at the moment um, to stand up and keep speaking the truth, you know. Um, there's a war machine um, that we're trying to fight here. So I, I think if people can find support amongst their own communities and build networks and try and find um, sustainable ways to keep, um, you know, pushing up against this genocide, and you know we can we can we can um, we can find 
strength in each other's movements. You know, I see stuff that's happening around the country every single day and it's and we're all drawing strength from that. So even just like reposting stuff on Instagram, you know, just keeping keeping the word out, keeping mm-hmm. the conversation going. Um, we're all we're all in this together. Um yeah, yeah, and yeah, obviously, like centering Palestinian sovereignty and dignity and human rights, and um, you know, strong messages of you know, it's not just ceasefire; it's end the apartheid, land back, you know, yeah, sovereign and- lands back to sovereign Palestinian people, and justice for war crimes. Absolutely, it's about it's about liberation, not a not a return to apartheid status quo. So, absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much, Carmen, for joining us this morning. Thanks for talking to me, Priya. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that was Carmen, who was one of the activists uh, who participated in the blockade uh, on the access road to Pine Gap on Monday um, on uh, Arnda country outside of Mbantua Alice Springs and a member of Mbantua for Palestine. And we just spoke about the relationship between Pine Gap and the ongoing genocide of Palestinians. Now, that's about all we have time for today on a Thursday morning breakfast. So um, take care, everyone. Uh, see you, Spike. Have a great day, Priya and listeners. Yes, and we'll catch you. See you next week. Catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.